Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. Diet is one of the most controversial topics in existence. Anyone who decides to either lose weight or change his or her diet to improve performance is presented with a dizzying array of different options. The only common thread is that all of these diets preach that their method is the only way you can truly be healthy. From the 4-hour body to Atkins, there are diet cults to match seemingly any mood and personality type. Everywhere we turn, someone is preaching the one true way to eat for maximum health. Paleo diet advocate, advocates tell us that all foods less than 12,000 years old are the enemy. Low-carb gurus demonize carbs, and then there are the low-fat prophets. But they agree on one thing. There's only one way to truly eat for maximum health. Matt Fitzgerald is a sports nutritionist and the author of the best-selling book, Racing Weight. In his new book, Diet Cults, The Surprising Fallacy at the Core of Nutrition Fads and a Guide to Healthy Eating for the Rest of Us, Matt exposes the irrationality, half-truths, and downright impossibility of a single right way to eat and reveals how to develop rational, healthy eating habits. A few of the topics we discussed included diet cults and why Matt decided to write the book in the first place, the idea of the one true way to eat and some of its fundamental flaws, explaining how and why different groups of people tend to identify with and follow certain diets, Matt's idea of agnostic healthy eating and how you can apply it to your own diet. This is an awesome interview if you have questions about developing the right diet for you. Matt's book was released Monday, May 5th, and I highly recommend it. Definitely one of the most balanced and informational reads about nutrition I've had this year. Also, just like a couple of weeks ago, we're going to have a free drawing for a copy of Diet Cults. You can enter at runnersconnect.net slash contest slash diet cults. That link is in the resources section of this page, along with all other resources mentioned in the show. So Matt, thanks for, uh, thanks for being here today. Tell us a bit about where you're from and kind of your background. Sure. Um, I started running uh, when I was 11 years old, so kind of a, a lifelong runner. Um, and um, I got that from my dad as well as the writing. My dad's a writer, and I grew up uh, always wanting to be a writer. Never really thought about putting the two together, but that's how it worked out. Um, and I developed uh, developed an interest in sports nutrition really through my writing. I mean, I was, I was an English major in college. I didn't I don't come from that kind of background, no, no kind of scientific or biology background, uh, but just got really into training and nutrition through writing and being an athlete. Um, and then uh, I got certified as a sports nutritionist in 2006. And I guess that's, that's it in a nutshell. So how did this interest in nutrition come about? Well, it started off, I was, I was really... Um, Initially, just focused on kind of ergogenics, you know, um, uh, interested in stuff, uh, supplements, sports drinks, things that you could take, take, you know, in and around competition to enhance performance. Um, and it, it kind of generalized from there where I just got more interested in, in diet in, in general. Um, but initially, I had a pretty narrow focus on, you know, the, the real, what I call performance nutrition. Okay. You have this book coming out. It's called Diet Cults, The Surprising Fallacy at the Core of Nutrition Fads and a Guide to Healthy Eating for the Rest of Us. Where did this book kind of come about and come from? 
it probably the the seed of it i would say was just my frustration with um with my work as um you know a, for lack of a better word an expert on sports nutrition you know i think everyone who who provides advice on diet and nutrition whether it's to athletes or to people in general they they experience the same thing where there there's so much information out there there's so many competing opinions that you can't just put your own opinion out there you also have to constantly establish credibility um because there you know there's so many voices that really aren't credible um and it, it was a constant source of frustration for me so looking at some of the the other information that was being put out there that you know I didn't really agree with and I, I felt was actually fundamentally uh, irrational. Um, I, and I thought, where does this come from? You know, why can't people seem to think straight, even think sanely about food and nutrition? So I decided to dig into it and I thought, you know, there's there's got to be something here. And so diet cults is my term for that, for um, any way of eating that is is fundamentally at bottom non-rational. You form sort of an identity-based attachment to a way of eating. You know, this is the one true way for everyone to eat, and then you kind of go out and defend it and proselytize for it, and nothing can possibly change your mind about it. You know, it's an article of faith. And uh, so, you know, I kind of identified this phenomenon and, and realized, you know, it's always existed. You, you go back to the, the kosher dietary laws of the ancient Hebrews, and you would think that, oh, well, things have changed now, you know, when people, you know, get on board with the diet, it's all about health. But that's really not true. I mean, yes, we do think we do eat for health, but all that stuff, uh, that identity-based stuff, the sense of moral superiority we get from, you know, eating better than others that, you know, existed 5,000 years ago, that stuff is still very much with us today, and it, it kind of makes a mess of the whole thing. So is there any specific incident that, prompting you to say, wow, this is very rational, and why Why would people buy into things like this? No, I wouldn't say it was one specific um, incident, although I, you know, something comes to mind. I had an email exchange with someone who disagreed with me about a particular point of nutrition. What exactly it was doesn't matter, but um, in one of the emails I received, it was kind of an, in one of those e tedious email debates when nobody's going to change the other person's mind. Mm -hmm. and I, I, got, I got an email from the person I was debating, and I noticed there were lots of, um, there was a lot of religious language in it. Um, she referred to, you know, like Monsanto as s Satan. Uh, there were words like, you know, good, evil, you know, right, wrong, uh, you know, God and Satan. And, and this woman was talking about food. And I thought, you know, this is interesting. And I had, you know, sort of already had this idea of diet cults in my mind by then, but it was what it was kind of a, a confirmatory experience. That's kind of interesting. And it sounds like, yeah, very strong language, which doesn't sound like it should be applied to something as simple as food. Yeah, I mean, we all have this experience where, you know, I think, you know, if, you, if we break it down by numbers, I think... I think most people actually just eat for pleasure and don't think enough about, you know, eating for health. And then there are a lot of people who try to eat for health, but don't really, you know, get go all in for, you know, a particular diet with a name and a, and a shtick. And then there's a, you know, a smaller group that are the people who are, you know, just the frothing mouthed, you know, wide eyed. This is the one true way for everyone to eat. I, I don't think that 
those people are not a majority, but they're very vocal, and there are a lot of them, and and we all know some of those people, and they you know they can be pretty fierce <laughs> in in their advocacy for their way of eating, which is a very interesting sort of split from you know most of human history. We just ate, and nobody really nobody ever thought anything about whether this was good for you, this is bad for you. I guess we knew that certain foods made you fat, and being fat made you slow, which meant you couldn't work as well or fight as well. Uh, but that's really the extent of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you just, you know, we have a lot more choice than we used to have, you know, and, you know, you go back several thousand years and just, you just ate what everyone around you ate. Um, you know, there was no, there was no marketplace of competing philosophies about how to eat. However, you know, what is true is that um, ancient cultures, food was always more than just food for ancient cultures. They, they would worship their staple foods, you know, like, you know, uh, so like certain South African tribes worship the potato. I, you know, I talk about that in the book. So, you know, y- you are what you eat. We're all familiar with that expression. Well, that, that, that functions on more than one level. Not only is your body made out of what you eat, but you identify, people identify with their way of eating. And ancient cultures did that. You know, it's just like, you know, their way of eating distinguished themselves from maybe other groups of people around them and actually made them feel superior to those groups. And if there were consequences, if you ate the wrong way, you know, if you're a member of tribe A and you started eating like a member of tribe B, the elders in your tribe would be very upset about that. And really what I'm suggesting is nothing has changed, you know. On the surface, things have. We have more choice. There is this marketplace of competing philosophies. But still, um, you know, people are, uh, they, sit, they use diet and ways of, you know, sort of rule-bound ways of eating to separate us and them and, you know, sacred from profane, really. Is that something that is just kind of inherently human or is that something that really comes out with food more than anything? Both, both. I think, you know, people, you know, this is well known as we sort of learn more about how the brain works, that people really aren't rational beings. You know, we, <laughs> we, we believe what it is good for us to believe. You know, you know our, our philosophies, our thoughts, our ideas, our sense of right and wrong, good and bad, they're all based on self-interest. Um, you know, you, you just believe what you believe and then you come up with reasons to justify it after, <laughs> after the fact. You don't, we don't go around rationally deducing. I mean, you know, we try to. We make institutions like science to kind of formalize that process as a hedge against our natu- natural way of thinking. But we're really not rational creatures. But food is, uh, I think, a, sp- a special case just because it's so fundamental. You know, in, in diet cults, I really argue that, you know, human morality is definitely, obviously, more sophisticated than the, the moral sense of any other animal. But I, I do believe that our morality grew out of food. Um, you know, it's a difficult thing to prove, but in the book I try to um, explain the process by which, which that may have occurred, that you know, our, our sense of right and wrong um, came out of our relationship with food and our uniquely human relationship with food because we are nature's ultimate omnivore. Uh, we eat much more broadly uh, than any other creature on earth does, which introduces this idea of choice, this idea of should I eat this way or should I eat that way. So um, I do see food as being a special case. And 
you know, th there's interesting evidence of it. Um, you know, there's the fact, I mentioned this research in the book, where um, there have been studies by a researcher at Yale um, who's found that infants as young as three months old express disapproval for actually puppets, they use puppets, <laughs> who, who seem to prefer foods that the baby himself or herself does not like. So at three months, actually, you know, infants, they actually want to see uh, puppets punished if the puppet hates food that the baby likes. So obviously this stuff is very, very deeply ingrained and has become a part of our innermost nature. That was a part that I thought was very interesting in the book, as well as the part about how, how many things, how varied the human diet can be with people moving from the interior of Africa to Siberia, Japan, India, the Americas, Europe, everywhere with all kinds of different stuff growing and animals available. That makes sense, but it's not something you ever really think about. Yeah, so, you know, our, you know, our species or, you know, the, uh, the ape species that eventually, you know, evolved into the hominids, who, which evolved into humans, we diverged from our, you know, last common ancestor with chimpanzees over food, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it is believed that you know at some point with you know changing climatic conditions in Africa, some tree-dwelling apes decided, hey, let's give it a shot on the ground. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? It's, it's getting awful dry around here. Let's see if we can scrounge up something on the ground. And you know, they made a decision. Let's let's see. We got to find some other kind of food. And they hopped down, and they made a good go of it. And then others stayed in the trees, and they're like, no way, too risky, man. <laughs> So that, you know, from the very beginning, that's where the split occurred. It was it was a decision to vary our uh, forms of sustenance, and it only continued from there. Where you know the success of those first adventurers who went down to the the floor in search of different kinds of food, they paid it forward to others who became even more sophisticated, more adaptable, able to incorporate more foods into the diet, and it went on and on and on, and eventually. You know, humans started to spread out from Africa all over the world. Well, that was only possible because we had already become so dietetically adaptive. And then we only became even more so as we spread out because there's, you, can, you, can, you can't travel across continents without having to change your diet drastically. So that's the legacy that we inherit today. You know, if you, if you talk to any of the, you know, dyed-in-the-wool advocates for paleo diet or veganism or, or whatever it is, you won't get this sense of just how adaptable we are and how any individual person can thrive on a multiplicity of different diets. I'm not saying anything goes, of course, but you can you could go from one you could go from paleo to vegan and if you do it right and uh, both times, you're gonna be equally healthy on both diets. Right. Let's uh, let's shift gears a bit. Can you just summarize some of the major diets that you discuss in the book? Like you mentioned paleo and you mentioned veganism, but there were six or eight or probably more. Can you just go into those a bit? Sure. Um, yeah, the first thing I'd like to say is um, that this book is not a survey of diet cults where, you know, one chapter is about debunking gluten-free diets and then the next chapter is about debunking some other diet. I, I wanted it, that would make a good magazine article, but I wanted, I wanted I wanted my book to have a little more richness than that and more of a kind of a positive agenda. Nevertheless, there is a fair amount of exactly that in the book. It, you know, it's unavoidable. 
Um, but really what I'm trying to do is show that underneath their surface differences, all of these different diet cults are actually fundamentally the same. Um, you know, we tend to think, oh, wow, they can't agree on anything. Actually, they agree very much on the core stuff, which they all agree that there is one true way, one best diet for all humans. And that's a fundamental um, <laughs> philosophical convergence. They disagree. They just disagree on the details um, and so on and so on. But, yeah, so I do cover, um, you know, the, the paleo diet. And um, I guess I could go on all day if I, you know, if I get too deep on each of them, but just as an example of what I'm doing with these diets, um, you know, we'll, we'll take paleo. What, one thing I focus on there is the fact that uh, the paleo diet is a decidedly male phenomenon. Uh, there, aren't, there aren't a lot of good data out there, um, but just experientially, we all tend to see that men tend to go for this type of diet more than women. So from the paleo perspective, well, they, they believe that that is the one true way for everyone to eat. It's, it is, you know, the best diet. So are men smarter than women? <laughs> is that what that means? Because more, more men are catching on to the one true way to eat. Are they more rational? Are they better at, you know, seeing the facts before them? My answer is no, <laughs> that, that they aren't. And in fact, if you look at the different diet cults, there is a, there's a gender bias in most of them. For example, um, you know, uh, um, vegetarians are much more likely to be female, but it's not just gender. There are all other other sorts of um, uh, demographics that influence majorities in different diets. For example, uh, liberals, people who are politically liberal, are more likely to be vegetarians. Also, um, so what we start to see is that it's really matters of identity that cause us to connect with a particular way of eating. You know, we want to think, no, 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 I made this choice rationally. You know, it's like I saw the facts, I concluded that it's the best diet, and that's why I started following it. No, it's not. Um, so, you know, paleo is just one example where I focus on the fact that it's not just male-dominated, but it tends to be, attract people in certain cultures, like CrossFitters, you know, are, are very likely to go for the paleo diet, whereas tennis players are not. Well, why is that? Are CrossFitters smarter than tennis players? No. You know, it's just that that whole notion of, um, you know, the noble savage and, you know, going back to, you know, our, our primal roots and running through the forest with a spear, you know, killing wild people. <laughs> that, that image, that's what you're really buying into when you buy into the paleo diet. And that image appeals to different identities than, you know, some more than others. Female more than, I mean, male more than female, CrossFit more than tennis etc etc so that's really what's going on behind the scenes with all of these diets and i just focused on on, on paleo as one example that's true that was not something you that you verbalize a lot but it makes a lot of sense so the thing that you're kind of advocating such as it is in the book is what you call agnostic healthy eating uh describe that for us yeah so you know this i have to be careful here because you know, the thing I want to avoid at all costs is hypocrisy, right? Where, where I, I sort of call out the, uh, the diet cults for their fundamental irrationality, and then I, go, I turn around and create my own diet cult, right? <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to do. But it's unavoidable to, to at least risk, risk that because, again, I'm not saying that anything goes with diet. You know, there are healthier and less healthy ways to eat. That's undeniable. 
what the diet cults do is they just they go two steps beyond the facts and they, they fill in the gaps with a lot of you know musts dietary musts that aren't really musts you know just take um take the uh, the low carb crowd for example you know they 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 say that we must avoid you know grains and sugar at all costs well if you actually look at mainstream research and nutrition science that's not a must at all you know you can certainly have too much of those things but you know the research shows for example that people who eat a lot of whole grains are healthier than who eat less so you know that's it's not really a must to avoid all grains at, at all at all costs so you know what i try to do is say okay for those who want to eat healthy who want to you know do what they can do with their diet to be healthier but they just can't swallow the dogma of the diet cults you know what is there out there for for them and that's where this agnostic healthy eating concept uh, comes about i just try to look at you know you know the mainstream research out there and say what do we really know about you know what we have to do to to eat healthily and and the parameters are very broad again you know most most of the diet cults actually fit within the rules of agnostic healthy eating the mistake they make is you know, most of these diets are are perfectly healthy if you do them right the mistake they make is saying you know it has to be this narrow where, whereas actually it's this broad and you can choose any spot you want within there so I, I create this simple game it's a one rule game where I um, categorize categorize the whole universe of foods according to ten types vegetables fruits nuts seed uh, nut seeds and healthy oils etc on down the line and I rank them in quality and I don't defend this list of my ranking as this is God's opinion about, you know what I mean? It's just, it's common sense and you could shuffle things around a tiny bit, but it's a good list. It's a good ranking that, you know, mainstream nutrition scientists would, would basically endorse. And I, I tell people simply eat the highest quality foods on this list mo most often, the lowest quality foods least often. So you can kind of just, it's a lot easier than counting calories. You just kind of, on a weekly basis, keep track of how frequently you're eating different types of foods. Um, and if, say, exa for example, you're eating more fried foods than you're eating uh, fish, that's probably not a good thing. If you correct that balance, you'll probably get healthier. Now, the thing I'm not doing that the diet cults do is I I'm not saying this agnostic healthy eating game is the one true way for everyone to eat. I'm just saying that I can guarantee if you play this game, you will be about as healthy as you can be. Um, and it's a lot... It's a lot easier or more attractive uh, for those of us who are just turned off by the diet cults because there's no shtick attached to it. And um, it also allows what's missing in a lot, lot of the diet cults. Well, let me say this. The reason the, the diet cults work for a lot of people is that they motivate them, um, you know, because it, it's hard in, in this world. It's hard to eat healthy. There's so much, um, you know, unhealthy, delicious food out there that you have to say no to day after day. The function of the dogma and the culture that surrounds diet cults is to help generate momentum to kind of swim against the stream. You know, you get the sense of moral superiority. You get just the sense of belonging to a group. So when you latch on to one of these diet cults, it, it becomes easier to swim against the grain and say no to cheeseburgers or whatever you have to say no to. And with agnostic healthy eating, um, I, you sort of lose that because I'm trying to create something that's fundamentally rational, whether 
in, instead of motivating people irrationally, as the diet cults do. But the advantage of agnostic healthy eating is that you can eat in a culturally normal way and just simply raise your quality standards, set the bar higher for overall quality. And that also makes things easy because the downside of, of the diet cults for a lot of people is that you have to eat weird. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's, a, there's inertia to culturally normal ways of eating, like cereal for breakfast, for example. A lot of diets, you can't have cereal for breakfast. But that's a culturally normal thing to do. So with agnostic healthy eating, I don't say give up cereal for breakfast. I just say choose a whole grain cereal with a lot without added sugar and add some berries to it. Um, and hopefully organic whole milk as well with it. You know what I'm saying? So that's basically the, uh, the agnostic healthy eating shtick in, in a nutshell. So I don't want to get too, too specific into all the diets because, again, we could go on for days about them. But... The one that you seem to have the least overall to say about is is the Weight Watchers one. Yeah. And it seems to me that's it's essentially preaching what you're preaching, just control the amounts. Yes. Yeah, Weight, weight Watchers is, it's pretty, you know, rational and mainstream and, and evidence-based in terms of, you know, how they, how they tell you to eat, what they tell you to eat. Um, they don't seem to specifically tell you much of anything to eat. Right. Yeah, you know, because obviously, you know, they're they're focused on um, you know weight control versus overall health. You know, they're not exactly the same thing. But again, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not claiming that any of these diet cults that I discuss in the book is bad for you. That's not the argument at all. So yeah, so I don't. So while I'm not critical of the composition of the quote unquote weight Weight Watchers diet. You know, I'm, I'm, I also, you know, at least try not to be critical. I, I try not to say that any of these diets is going to make you less healthy if, if you follow it. I think you can be a super healthy vegan, a super healthy low-carb person, super healthy Mediterranean diet advocate, you know, whatever. Now, most of these diets, if you do it right, you can be super, super healthy on it. And that's kind of the point. But, you know, with respect to Weight Watchers, it's still a diet cult. Uh, because there is a culture that surrounds it, and you know, pe- people while they while there there is a there's an evidentiary basis for it. Nevertheless, people get people get involved in it for non-rational reasons. Uh, Weight Watchers is like ninety percent female, um, and it's a sisterhood, and that's what how it started off. And that whole sisterhood aspect to it is actually a big part of why it works. For the people it does work for. Now, I should say most people who go on Weight Watchers fail <laughs> in the long term. They fail. They fail to achieve permanent weight loss. But for the people for whom it does work, it's not. It's not the points system. It's not the diet itself. You can lose weight in 85 different ways, and the Weight Watchers way is no better than any other way. But it's that sense of community. Um, and, and people who really get into Weight, weight Watchers, and you know, the woman I, I profile in the book who, who you know, is a Weight Watchers person, you know, she says, matter-of-factly, I'm going to be on Weight Watchers for the rest of my life you know, because there's, there's an identity attachment there. You know, it's become a part of who she is, and that's really why it works for her. She could switch to another diet tomorrow and have the same results, um, if you follow me. Physically, if not yep. motivationally. Exactly. So, 
let's shift gears again. The healthiest people, at least according to you, and makes <laughs> sense, are endurance, are uh, you know endurance athletes, and particularly elite endurance athletes. Why why are endurance athletes in general more, most inclined to the agnostic approach that you talk about, if not in so many words? Truth is, I don't know anything about the diets of basketball players and rugby players. Um, you know, I I am a sports nutritionist um, within the endurance sports realm. So that's just the evidence in front of me. And really what I'm trying to do there is this. Um, you know, suppose we ask the question, uh, what is the world's healthiest diet? You know, what, what is the healthiest diet in the world? It seems like a very basic question, but science has never actually directly tried to answer that question. What, what science does is it, it'll do these big epidemiological studies where they'll look at dietary patterns in a, in a large population and they'll look at risk for specific diseases or, or negative health outcomes and then they'll try and find an association. Well, looky here, if you eat a lot of french fries, you know, you're more likely to die of a heart attack, that, that type of thing. And that's kind of a piecemeal way of trying to answer this question, you know, what is the world's healthiest diet? And I think um, really a preferable way to go about it would be to define maximum health. What would be, uh, and I've, I've looked into this, but, you know, you know you, you could, it's very doable. You could come up with sort of a battery of tests that would, you know, again, it wouldn't be God's final decision on what constitutes a healthy person, but it would be very defensible. You know, we, we know that, you know, certain things need to be in your blood at certain levels for you to be healthy, that sort of thing. You know, a, a lean body composition is, is another one. Um, strong, uh, endogenous antioxidant defenses. You, know, you could come up with maybe 12 and, and create a test. So you could put tens of thousands of people through this test, and then you could identify those who were overall the healthiest people of all. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. So this hasn't ever been done. I hope it is done. But I would, I would suggest that if you did, the healthiest people would be endurance athletes. So that's sort of where I'm going. And, and, it, and you can sort of back into that conclusion by looking at um, what we do know about the relationship between people who are aerobically very fit and all these individual parameters like body composition that I would put into my battery of tests that would determine who the healthiest people are. So in, 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 in the absence of the kind of research I wish were out there, I use endurance athletes as my own little core cohort who kind of represent the healthiest people. And they, re they really are. I'm not saying you know, it's exclusive and that no one who isn't a triathlete or a mountain biker <laughs> is Absolutely. supremely healthy. It's just it's kind of a shorthand. You know, it just allows me to, to make things simple. So you know, it so happens as you know, it's part of my job or I've made it a part of my job to study and analyze the diets of these people. And that's, um, you know, getting back to a question you asked earlier about why I wrote this book. This is another reason I wrote it, because one of the interesting things I found looking at the diets of these super, super healthy people is that most of them are not in diet cults. <laughs> you know, most of them, very, very few, you know, elite level uh, endurance athletes would identify themselves as, you know, I'm a gluten-free eater or I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm on a high-fat diet or, you know, whatever it is, they, don't, they have no name for their diet. It's just healthy. It, you know, if you look at it, 
in, in my previous book, Racing Weight, I've got a whole chapter that's just, you know, one-day food journals from professional endurance athletes. And if you look at, you know, any one of them, it'll look completely normal the first time you glance at it, you know, cereal for breakfast, et cetera, et cetera. But when you kind of dig deeper, you'll notice that it's just a, a very high-quality version of, you know, a normal American or English diet or, or what, what have you. So a little bit of a side note on this. Like I was saying earlier, there are a lot of a lot of different disciplines within endurance athletes. There are mountain bikers, swimmers, road cyclists, triathletes, track runners. Are there any have you noticed any kind of tendencies between any certain any certain sport within within endurance athletes? Just a personal interest thing mostly. Yeah. Um I I have. I mean there, there definitely are kind of cultural differences uh between sports but i noticed that they're um you know i guess i can't say they're entirely disappearing for example um you know trail runners ultra runners um are are more likely to have jumped on board one of the, the newer fads which is a high fat low carb diet and i don't think swimmers are really going for that as far as i can tell so you'll i think you'll always see that because you know these, you know, the various endurance disciplines are, are rather balkanized, you know, um, like swimmers don't have much to say to cyclists <laughs> and vice versa. You're going to get, um, you're going to get some differences in, in eating patterns as well. But the kind of the more interesting trend is, is um, inclusive of, of all endurance sports, which is that uh, since, say, the mid-70s, overall quality standards at the elite level across endurance disciplines have gone way up. Um, you know, this is another thing I talk about in the book. You know, you go back to the seventies, the likes of Bill Rogers. Yes. The, you know, uh, the chocolate chip cookies and mayonnaise at four at two yeah. o'clock in the morning. Is yes. a pretty famous story. Right. Yeah. And you know, he, you know, th these guys were proud of how bad their diets were. Right. The mentality was we can eat whatever we want. Uh, you know, we we're, we can get away with it. How can you say I'm not? You know, I've just won four Boston marathons, right? right. Um, but you know, what's happened is that um, you know these sports have only become more and more competitive in the 30, 40 years since then. Um, and guess what? You you can't get away with that stuff anymore. Or you know, there's much much less margin for error. Um, you know, a good a good example is Michael Phelps who. You know, he, he was really, you know, he's a much more recent example of a world-class endurance athlete. And, you know, he was famous for his bad diet early in his career, but he cleaned it up. You know, he started to feel like people were catching up to him, and that was one thing he could change. So he actually made an effort uh, to improve his diet. So that's something that is an interesting trend that, you know, is inclusive of all endurance sports, is, you know, higher quality standards. I was just going to bring up Michael Phelps because uh... – Who's to say that if, say, Frank Shorter had decided to clean up his diet, he wouldn't have started running away from Bill Rogers in every race they ran? He did that anyway, but he got beat by by Rogers a few times too. So it's uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I um, it, yeah, there are some interesting examples of yeah. That's a great what if uh, question. We can sort of back our way into an answer to it by looking at examples of contemporary athletes who did change their diet um, and, and, and looked at, okay, did it actually make a difference or not? So, you know, athletes who are already training at the highest level, 
but go from a crappy diet to a much better diet. You know, if nothing changes, then the guys in the 70s were right. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. But if something changes, guess what? You know, even if even just a little, well, a little matters a lot, you know, at, at this level. Um, in, in Diet Cults, I talk about, you know, the example of Chris, uh, so, not Chris Solinsky, that was an, another book, uh, Chris Horner, the cyclist, who yes. did that. Um, you know, he was a very successful cyclist, uh, had a long career, but, you know, late in his career, made a decision, you know what, I'm going to, and his diet was atrocious, but he made, he made a decision not to make it perfect, and he didn't join any diet cults, he just continued to eat like a normal red-blooded American, but improved his standards, you know, cut out a lot of the junk, added some vegetables, stuff you know in kindergarten. Um, and and he, he lost, uh, I think, close to 10 pounds, and his performance, you know, very late in his career, he was 38 years old when he made this change, his performance went to a, another level. So, you know, he, he was even shocked. He's like, I didn't know I had 10 pounds to lose. I was a skinny guy, but lo and behold. So, yeah, you're never, uh, believe me, like, I, I, I firmly believe, and I, I, I go into this in the book as well, and this is not something a lot of sports nutritionists will admit. I do believe that um, training hard and being fit allows you to get away with, uh certain excesses in your diet that couch potatoes can't get away with. And, and the science is squarely behind that uh, claim. However, you know, it always makes a difference, even if it's a small difference, to eat better. So it's just a matter of how much, you know, what constitutes good enough for you. You know, if you're happy with all your PRs um, and you want to be able to, you know, have a, a brownie for dessert every, every night after dinner, so be it. Um, but if it's meaningful, if cutting out the brownies is worth a two-second improvement in your 10K time, that's your decision, too. You know, but you know, if, you, if you improve your diet, you will get something out of it, even if it's ju just at the margins. Right. The, uh, I don't remember what the figure was, but I believe you talk about it in the book of it can, if it improves your performance by you know, 0.5%. If you're a world-class runner at, say, running 13 minutes for 5K, 0.5% is three seconds. And that's the difference between running 12.1301 and 12.58. And there's a big difference in those numbers. If you're yep. a four-hour marathoner, 0.5% is, you know, two or three minutes. Yep. And that's, that's significant. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, you would think that um, if, if, say, you, you look at some major marathon with 20,000 runners, you're going to expect the guy who finishes 10,000 to be uh, fatter <laughs> than the person who wins. But it's actually very likely that the person who finishes second is also fatter than the guy who finishes first. That, uh, right. There's really interesting research that looks only at elite-level runners and ranks them both by performance and by body fat percentage. And they're the same order. <laughs> That even at the very highest level, when you're, you're talking, you know, people with times for 1,500 meters between 350 and 339, you know, these are all elite runners. The margins are small, but there are still predictable differences in how lean they are. So, yeah, it goes right up, right up to the top. That's kind of interesting. So let's shift gears again. Um, want to go into some, I was in my preparation for this, I try to think of some questions that people might uh might ask about your book that maybe we didn't, that we haven't covered yet so 
what about calorie counting? What's your opinion on, on that? Is it something you can do? It's just kind of complicated. Go into that a bit. Yeah, calorie counting um, basically cannot be done accurately. Um, even if you have a PhD in nutrition and every resource at your disposal. Um, and in fact, there, there may be a, a big revolution coming in, in how calorie counting actually is done. So, so, so that's the thing is that you just, you just can't do it accurately. Um, so, so why bother? Uh, th that could be one conclusion. However, it, calorie counting could be uh, useful even if it isn't accurate, because people who actually make the effort to count their calories, they become more mindful of how they're eating. Um, so it's funny. It's one of those things where observation changes what you're observing, and you almost can't even help it. If you start to, re and it, it doesn't, this doesn't just go for count calorie counting. It could go for weighing yourself or just keeping a food journal without calorie counts. Anything you do that causes you to pay attention to what you're putting in your mouth is probably going to horrify you, you know, and, and make you, because we, we, we tend to look at our diets with rose-colored glasses. And if you do anything that forces you to see how you're really eating, um, you're going to realize it wasn't uh, you're eating more than you thought or more junk than you thought, and that's going to lead to some positive uh, changes. So calorie counting, you know, can actually be useful even, even if it's not accurate. Um, and that's kind of my take on that. That's interesting. So assuming that somebody wants to go forward with this, even though maybe it's not entirely accurate, what's your take on like certain amounts of calories for certain weights and increasing it and things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's where you get into, uh, you know, math, <laughs> right? It's, it, start, it starts with your goal. Am I trying to maintain my current weight or, or lose weight or gain weight. Most people aren't trying to gain weight. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're, if you're trying to lose weight, um, I, I guess, you know, probably the, the best guideline to give is that you want a moderate, you want to aim for a moderate calorie deficit, you know, 300, 400 calories a day. If, if you try to aim for a bigger deficit, you're just going to be starving. Um, and that will, that will make it a lot harder to sustain. And also, when you go for very large calorie deficits, you, you start losing things besides fat. And the, what's the point of that? So if it's a moderate right. deficit, most of and you're exercising, you're going to be losing almost all fat. If you, if you starve yourself, you're going to just waste away, lose muscle, bone density, all kinds of uh, other stuff. Um, and, you know, if you aim for a very, very small deficit, it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, just one calorie a day less than... <laughs> Less than I burn, well, it's going to take you 45 years. Yeah, then that'll take a long time to, <laughs> to do anything of, of note. So one thing you talk about, and this is probably just because it's a standard thing and used in studies, what's, what about body mass index? Does that mean anything? What do you think about that? Um, it, it's pretty useless. Uh, it's a useless metric for the individual person who's concerned about his or her own health. Um, it's somewhat useful um, for research, you know, as kind of a, a shorthand for, you know, how fat someone is. Um, but even there, it's limited, and there are, there are other, other metrics that are, that are better. So, you know, I, I, I say forget about it um, and focus on your, your, your weight, your actual weight, and your body composition. And honestly, 
even the mirror test. Um, you know your body. You know uh, most of us at some point in our lives were at a weight that we were pretty happy with, and you know, and you remember what you looked like, <laughs> um, and you, you've right. lived in your body your whole life. So it doesn't have to be all science. You know, if you put on a pair of jeans and you notice they're fitting a little tighter, or you look in the mirror and you can't get your eyes off, you know, those you know budding love handles. That's all. That's all good evidence too. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, what's what advice do you have for people? Just generally, people who are trying to lose weight. What what would you say? Like without with your experience and and, and education and training, somebody comes to you says, "I want to lose weight." What do you say? What, what do you say to them? The uh, it's all about motivation. It is all about motivation. That's uh, I'm interested to see. Um, you know, I'm going to get a lot of blowback on this book. You know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and and I wonder if the most controversial chapter in it uh, is going to be the one called the suck it up diet. <laughs> that doesn't chapter, sound. That sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> chapter pretty five, I believe it is. And and again, this is research back. It's just not. It's not really all that out there. But um, there's this group called the National Weight Control Registry. And, you know, earlier when I talked about, you know, what is the world's healthiest diet and, and my conception for the best kind of study to identify it, of course, it would be a, a variety of diets. This has already been done with respect to weight loss diets. So the, a, a couple of, a pair of scientists got together and, st- and said uh, to themselves, instead of coming up with a diet and then testing it on people to see how effective it is, why don't we just go find the people, those rare people who have actually succeeded in losing a lot of weight and keeping it off for a long time and ask them how they did it. <laughs> so this group called the National Weight Control Registry, they created and they just they invited anyone who had lost at least 30 pounds and, and kept the weight off at least a year to join. And then they, they just studied these, these thousands of people. And the idea was, let's see what really works for people in the real world. How are these people eating? Well, what they came up with was nothing. <laughs> Their diets were all over the map. There was no consistency at all. Now, this doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean anything goes. There, there were some differences between their diets and the diets of people who are still fat. For example, people who've lost a lot of weight and kept it off tend to eat more vegetables than people who are still fat. Okay. But within that group of people who have lost a lot of weight and kept it off, there was much, as much variety in their, in their diets as there is in the general population. So the, the researchers couldn't find anything. They, they couldn't identify anything for people to follow. It's like, here's what you got to do if you want to lose weight. What, what they found was, there, there's, the way I phrase it in the book, there's more ways to lose weight than there are to win a chess game. It's, so it's not what, what you eat has very, very little to do with uh, the outcome of an effort to lose weight. And some other research from the same group, the National Weight Control Registry, and other research suggests that all that matters is your level of sustained motivation that you bring to a diet. So, you know, if you really, really are determined to lose weight, obviously you're not going to pick a stupid diet, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. You know, you're not going to go on an all-fried chicken diet to lose weight. <laughs> Nobody's that dumb. So that part is easy. The what, the what you eat part is easy. Um, but people who are serious about losing weight are going to be much more likely to weigh themselves frequently. They're going to be much more likely to maintain consistent 
eating patterns on the weekends uh, and the weekdays. doesn't matter what diet you're on, but a lot of people, they change their habits on the weekend. They have you know an extra drink at dinner. They have desserts that they don't have during the week, and they're going to be much more likely to exercise as well. So there are certain things that successful losers do uh, that others don't, and they're all simply indicators of a high level of motivation. And motivation is not willpower. Willpower is something you either got or you don't. Everyone has enough willpower to lose weight. Motivation is more of a situational, circumstantial thing. So, you know, people who've tried to lose weight 10 times and never succeeded, it's not that they lack the willpower, and it certainly isn't the fact that they don't know how to lose weight. Pretty much any diet will do. Um, it's just that they haven't found the right motivation for them at the right time. It's kind of like, you know, catching lightning in a bottle. Right. That's exactly the story you told with the uh, the woman you profiled about Weight Watchers who had tried, I think you said, at least a dozen different diets. And yep. none of them ever worked because she was just never able to stick to them. Right. Exactly. But any of those other diets does work for some people. You know, it's just, again, uh, you know, the, I think there is such a thing as a good match between a diet and someone's personality. But I think that's a, that's a, that's less important than you know, the actual motivation. Um, you know, people who, for example, are get their motivation to lose weight from a, a major health scare are much more likely to succeed in the long term. Well, what does that tell you? You know, it's just you, 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 it, 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 you just have to have, you have, a, have to have a strong motivation. You're the same person you were the day before, but your doctor just scared the heck out of you. <laughs> and, right. you know, and you may actually go on the same diet you tried and failed on before. So it's not the diet either. You know, if it's, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. It's a cliche, but it's very true in, in this instance. So that brought up another question, a comment you made earlier about changing habits on the weekends. There are uh, plenty of diets out there that tell you, that give you rules. And maybe, they're, and maybe these are all completely sound rules, but one thing they also tell you is have a day or a meal or something where you just do whatever you want. Is that... Just to motiv- just to keep you motivated, or to keep you sane, or does that actually do something for you? Well, the, my take on it is that it's actually a tacit admission that the dogma of that particular diet cult is baloney. <laughs> hmm. You know, take take the paleo diet for example, where you know Lauren Cordain, the guy who invented it, um, you know, he, he he comes out there and says, you know, grains are poison. They'll kill you um you know legumes are, are poison they'll kill you um all you know any food that we weren't eating you know twenty thousand years ago is poison and will kill you and, and then he turns around and says you only have to follow these rules 80 percent of the time <laughs> the other 20 percent of the time you can do whatever you want well wait a minute <laughs> if if that's the case, why didn't you just create a diet that allowed you to eat everything, <laughs> but you know, but told you not to overdo the greens? <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's a lot of game plan going on here. You know, these, you know, there's money to be made from coming up with a successful diet, and it's just something that people do. You know, you can get attention, you can get money. Um, it's out there. People create diets. Uh, there's, it's a whole industry in our culture. So. You know they'll 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 come up with something just for the sake of coming up with something, and they know they're playing a game. And when 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 a diet allows you know a fractional or percentage based amount of cheating, that's a red flag right there. That the person who came up with that diet himself doesn't even believe in in the dogma. Okay, that uh, 
but yeah, that, that paleo argument certainly makes a lot of sense. So I have another question now about um, what do you what do you think about like people talk about like detoxing or rebooting their systems or things? What what's your take on that? That's like juicing and things. Or is that is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, again, uh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of these things. They're all over the map. So I, I can't make a sweeping statement of, you know, okay. good, bad, healthy, unhealthy. Um, I would say that, you know, most of them are fine. <laughs> They're fine <laughs> things to do. They don't actually do what they claim in most cases, which is detoxification. I mean, you know, that, that's a word with, you know, a precise meaning. Um, and, you know, this is not a point that's original to me, so I won't belabor it, but, the, you know, our bodies have built-in mechanisms, organs, whose job is to detoxify. You know, there are such things as toxins that come into our bodies through food and from other sources uh, that it's best to get rid of. You know, alcohol is one, <laughs> uh, toxic in, in, in more than small amounts, and, you know, our, we process it and, and get rid of it. Um, <clears throat> so... Anything, any sort of, you know, cleanse, you know, juice cleanse or whatever that you're going to do for the sake of detoxifying is not going to do the job as well as your own internal organs do. And in fact, there's, there's little evidence that any sort of, you know, de detox that you might do, nutritional detox, actually does that at all. You know, it might be, you might get a certain, you know, beneficial fasting effect from something like that, but... Um, it's really actually a spiritual exercise. You know, there's a whole chapter in the book, as you know, about fasting, where I go into the history of it. And so um, the benefits that you may get out of doing, you know, a, a three-day cleanse or whatever are going to be probably primarily, you know, spiritual and emotional, even if you convince yourself that, you know, it's physical. That's kind of, yeah, That's uh, that was a very interesting chapter. I hadn't really looked into that because it's frankly not as you said it's really not all that pleasant and anytime you go you have to go hungry it's it's just not a just not a nice time but it was still a very interesting thing to to read about because i had never done it before so um man i don't want to keep you too much longer so uh what uh what final advice do you have for those listening what to do with their diets or to improve their performances or whatever well you know i think probably the the take-home message is you know if i'm, if I'm going to beat a drum um, it is this idea that there is no one healthiest way to eat. Um, I'm not saying anything goes, but there are a lot of different healthy diets out there. So stop knocking yourself out. If you're, if you're currently not satisfied with your health or with your eating habits, don't knock yourself out trying to find you know, the one true way that all humans were meant to eat. There's no such thing. Um, so that gives you a lot of leeway to find a healthy diet that works for you. And if, if that means that, you know, you happen to be attracted to, you know, what I would call a diet cult, you know, it's, you know, say it's, you know, flexitarianism or whatever. If that speaks to you and you're like, you know, that, that works because the things I have to give up, I don't really, you know, they're not my favorite treats in the first place. And I have several friends who are flexitarians and, you know, we could eat meals together, whatever it is, that's, that is, that is as fine a reason as any to start eating a certain way. But, you know, if you are turned off by diet cults generally, then I would encourage you to turn toward this option of agnostic healthy eating, which is basically eating a, a culturally normal diet for, you know, whatever culture you belong to, but just raising your standards a bit 
And again, um, you know, endurance athletes, uh, top-level endurance athletes are a good model for that type of thing. You know, they're, they're living proof that it works, and they also provide specific examples for how you could do it. That sounds like great advice for anybody, uh, endurance athlete or just any or just a regular person who, whether they want to lose weight or just get healthier. Well, Matt, thank you very much for your time. Uh, everybody out there, Matt's book comes out, is it May 18th? Um, I believe May 8th. There are actually two different dates on uh, Amazon.com, both the 8th and the 15th. We'll call it the 8th. Okay. Uh, yes. So Matt's book comes out on the 8th. It's available for pre-order now. It's a pretty interesting read. I would definitely recommend it. So Matt, thanks very much for your time, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. As I stated before, we'll be having a drawing for a free copy of Matt's book. Go to runnersconnect.net slash contest slash diet cults to enter. You can also find that link in the resources section of the podcast. We'd also love to know what you think of our podcasts. Please let us know by leaving a short review on the Apple iTunes page. If you have a question, you can leave a comment on this page or leave us a voice message at 617-356-7969. I'm Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.